بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله We're back again and it's been a while and this is lesson three of our study of the tafsir of Surah Al-Kahf. And we mentioned in the first and second classes in this tafsir that one of the works that we're relying on as a sort of mainstay or umda for this tafsir is the work of Shaykh Abdul Rahman Habannaka rahimahullah ta'ala. And he divided the themes of Surah Al-Kahf into 11 parts. And that's how we structured the translation that I sent out to everyone. You see that the translation of the chapter has it divided into 11 different parts. And in the introduction to this class and in class one or lesson one of the actual tafsir, we looked at verses one through six. We looked at the first part of that theme. And we want to do a very brief recap of the theme of verses one through six, so that we go into the second set of verses, which details the actual story of Ashab al-Kahf, the namesake of this chapter. So we begin with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Alhamdulillahi alladhi anzala ala abdihi al-kitaba wa lam yaj'al lahu iwaja. Allah Ta'ala praises himself and his self-praise is connected with him revealing the Qur'an to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam whom he calls his abd. And he says, وَلَمْ يَجْعَلْ لَهُ عِوَجًا And the book does not have any crookedness. The Qur'an is complete in itself and it completes others. كَامِلٌ فِي نَفْسِهِ مُكَمِّلٌ لِغَيْرِهِ is complete in itself and it completes others. There's no distortion, no iwaja in its syntax, its language, its meanings, and its beauty. After that, Allah Ta'ala says, قَيِّمًا لِيُنْذِرَ بَأْسًا شَدِيدًا He describes it as qayyiman, and we said that qayyim here has the meaning of mustaqim. What's the difference, however, between qayyim and mustaqim? Qayyim is with the meaning of it being a caretaker or a custodian or protector. So the Qur'an, the kalam of Allah Ta'ala, is perfect in itself and free of any crookedness or excess or deficiency. And it keeps others upright and firm and protects their interest. So when you say qayyim, it doesn't just mean it's straight in itself. It means it will straighten others out if they take the guidance of the Qur'an. So after this, Allah Ta'ala mentions the purpose for revealing the Qur'an. He uses the lam ta'alil, the particle lam in Arabic that takes the meaning of cause or reason, right? And he says, qayyiman liyunthira ba'tsan shadidan min ladun wa yubashira al-mu'minina al-ladhina ya'maluna al-salihat anna lahum ajran hasana. So the purpose of the revelation of the Qur'an is stated right here, to warn of a severe punishment from himself and to deliver the bushra, the good news, to the believers who do righteous deeds that they will have an excellent reward. So we see here that Allah mentions the purpose behind revelation as delivering a warning and glad tidings. And you see these two themes throughout the Qur'an, the giving of warning and glad tidings. And Allah describes His Prophet Wasallam as what? Bashiran wa nadira, As the bringer of good tidings 
and as a warner. And we always see in the Qur'an and in the Sunnah of the Prophet this balance between khawf wa raja, between fear and hope in our relationship with Allah Ta'ala. So this is describing the purpose of the revelation of the book to give the warning and the glad tidings. Now the Bushra here is not a Bushra to just stay out of hell. The Bushra is for Ajr al-Hasana, an excellent reward, an excellent bestowal from Allah Ta'ala. What is this Ajr Hasana? The Ajr Hasana is Jannah and all that it entails. Because right after this, Allah Ta'ala says, مَا كِثِينَ فِيهِ أَبَدًا Residing or abiding therein forever. And then, after this, Allah mentions a third purpose behind the revelation of the Qur'an. And to give warning of a more specific nature. وَيُنذِرَ الَّذِينَ قَالُوا اتَّخَذَ اللَّهُ وَلَدًا and to warn those who say that God has begotten a son. So this is a more specific kind of warning from taken from the general warning mentioned before. So you have Am and Khas. So the general warning is mentioned before this. This is a specific form of warning for which the Quran was revealed. To warn those who have said that Allah has taken a son. Now we mentioned in the previous class that this verse doesn't mention Christians in particular. It doesn't mention even Sayyiduna Isa. It just mentions the belief that God has taken a son. Why is that? Why wasn't it mentioning the Christians specifically? Exactly. Because it's not just the Christians who had that belief. You have some of the pagan Arabs who believe that the angels were Banatullah, the daughters of Allah. You have a, a sect of the Jews at that time that had have died out. But at that time, and prior to the Prophet, this sect of the Jews believed that Uzair, Ezra, was the son of God. And of course, you have the Christians who say that Jesus is the Son of God. So all of these and any other people believing that God has begotten a son are warned by the Qur'an. After this, in verse 5, Allah Ta'ala negates this belief, saying that neither they nor their forefathers had any basis for it, and that it's a very grievous word, a very heavy word, that comes out of their mouth, and it's nothing but a lie. مَا لَهُمْ بِهِ مِنْ عِلْمٍ وَلَا لِآبَائِهِمْ كَبُرَتْ كَلِمَةً تَخْرُجُ مِنْ أَفْوَاهِهِمْ إِنْ يَقُولُونَ إِلَّا كَذِبًا They have no knowledge of this, nor did their forefathers. Grave is the word that comes out of their mouths. They say nothing but a lie. So there's a subtlety here that the ulama of tafsir bring out, and that is, Allah mentions, And to warn against those who said, God has taken a son. And here, Allah Ta'ala says, Grievous or grave is the word that comes out of their mouths. So, some of the ulama say that the subtlety here is, it's so absurd, it's as if it's not coming out of their intellects. It's just coming out of their mouth. That's absurd. It's so absurd. It's not coming from a mind that has really thought out the consequences and implications of such a belief. And they say nothing but a lie. Because a lie is not just the purposeful telling of a falsehood. Right? A person could believe something sincerely and be sincerely wrong, right? A person is still telling a lie even if they believe it's truth. Because a lie, by definition, is the opposite of truthfulness. So you have truth and falsehood. A lie is basically to say something 
that is not congruent with reality. It doesn't match reality as it is. So if I, for whatever reason, believed that I'm currently in Bombay, or Mumbai as they say it today, and I said, I am in Mumbai. If I sincerely believe it, I'm not telling a purposeful lie, but everyone knows that we're not in Mumbai. So it's still a lie, because what I'm saying doesn't match reality. So Allah Ta'ala is saying, إِن يَقُولُونَ إِلَّا كَذِبًا They utter nothing but a lie. It's a lie even if they believe it's true. Right? After this, we come to the final part of this, the first set of verses and the first theme. Allah Ta'ala now addresses the Prophet Sallallahu by saying, فَلَعَلَّكَ بَاخِعٌ نَفْسَكَ عَلَىٰ آثَارِهِمْ إِن لَمْ يُؤْمِنُوا بِهَادَ الْحَدِيثِ أَسَفًا Perhaps you may destroy yourself with grief, chasing after them, if they do not believe in this, in this discourse, this information. And this is the tasliyah, the consolation. Allah is consoling the Prophet ﷺ on account of the mushrikun refusing to believe. He was very pained by their refusal and their rejection. And that's because he wanted good for his people. And Allah consoles him here by telling him that this matter of guidance is up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Your duty is to convey the message it is for Allah to guide them and to open their hearts or leave them closed. So this is what we covered in more detail in Lessons 1 and 2. We now come to the second section of the chapter. The second set of verses of the 11 sections mentioned by Sheikh Abdurrahman Habadnaka describes the narrative of Ashabul Kaf. So that story of the young men in the cave is what is discussed in this section. But we're going to talk about the Ashabul Kaf in two classes because we want to go into a little bit of detail about who they are and what happened and the background and then extract some lessons from the story that apply to us today. Now before Allah Ta'ala mentions the story of the young men in the cave, He says, and this is a rhetorical question, أَمْ حَسِبَتَ أَنَّ أَصْحَابَ الْكَهْفِ وَالرَّقِيمِ كَانُوا مِنْ آيَاتِنَا عَجَبًا Did you know that the people of the cave and the inscription were of our wondrous signs? So there's two things here. أَصْحَابُ الْكَهْفِ and رقيم. أَصْحَاب We translate that as companions. Right? Sahaba. Right, Sahib. So the Ashab literally means the companions, but here it means those of the cave, those whose story is linked with this cave. It's a motif in the story. So the Ashab al Kaf, they're also called Ashab al Raqim, those of the inscription. So these are two ways of describing these young men. Why are they called Ashabul Kaf, the young, the men or the people of the cave? Well, for obvious reasons, because their story centers around them going into a cave. Why are they called Ashabul Raqim, the people of the inscription? It is because, as we will see, an inscription was placed over the cave by the people as they were sleeping for all those years. So this. Uh, marks their presence in the cave and identifies them and it shows you that they were known, they were recognized and this story spread among the people. And we'll come back to that inshallah. Now, let's go back to the beginning and recall the reason why the chapter was revealed to the Prophet ﷺ. It was a response to a challenge put forth by who? So it came from Quraysh, but the Quraysh got it from the rabbis in Yathrib. We told the, st the story of uh, Nadr ibn al-Harith, uh, 
uh, and another one who traveled to Yathrib and received this information from some of the rabbis uh, as a kind of challenge. This is important to, to, to remember now because we're going to see some slight discrepancy here. Now, when you go to the story, you see that it's not just a plain story. Allah does not just tell the story, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and here's the conclusion, here's the, the culmination of their story. No. Within each part of the story, there are lessons and counsels that address the problems of Quraysh and which correct their false beliefs. This is very important because they heard from these rabbis this story and they were told to ask about it. We don't know that they heard the story, but they were just told to ask him, what do you say about the Ashab al-Kaf? What's the story of the, of the men in the cave? Quraysh put this challenge to the Prophet he has to wait for Allah Ta'ala to, to, to reveal the chapter. And then he recites the chapter. In the chapter are the answers. And in the story, are not, it's not just the story, but also counsel and guidance and things pointing out the beliefs and ethics of Quraysh. So you have mention of Allah's existence and His power his lordship, his oneness, and how worshiping other than Allah is utter misguidance. There's a discussion on the afterlife and resurrection because the bulk of Quraysh did not believe in life after death. And in this, there's a very important lesson for all of us. Allah Ta'ala could have revealed the story in a very clear narrative fashion. Beginning, middle, end. But instead, he mentions the story with lessons in between addressing Quraysh. And there's a very important lesson in that for us. Because it means that when someone asks you a question, it is good to provide additional information in the answer to give the questioner what they need, even if they didn't ask about it specifically. So if you're a teacher or if you're a parent, and you receive a question from a student or your child, there is the question, and then there's other things behind the question. And then there's things from within the answer that you want to emphasize or add on to for their benefit. They didn't ask about those things, but you can put them in the answer because that's what they need. So instead of just telling the story, in between the story there are lessons and guidance and counsel given to Quraysh specifically for their problems. So there's a very important lesson there. Now, Allah Ta'ala is telling us in this verse, and this is a rhetorical question addressed to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Am hasibata anna ashab al-kahfi wal-raqimi kanu min ayatina ajaba. Do you consider that the people of the cave and the inscription were of our wondrous signs. So Ajaba here, we're, we're going with the translation wondrous. You say something is Ajib, right? Here, Ajab is not an Ajab of doubt. Because sometimes in the Quran, the word Ajab is not something wondrous in a positive sense. It's something that, get, that, that causes a person to doubt, right? So Allah mentions how uh, some of the disbelievers of Quraysh were saying to the Prophet Sallallahu Does he say that there's only one God? Does he basically remove belief in false God and the other gods and say there's only one God? That's something wondrous, meaning that's extraordinary as, as something far-fetched. They, they rejected it. But that's not what it means here. This is one of exaltation, ajib, 
it's ajib, it's wondrous, it's an exaltation of Allah's reverence and His power, His omnipotence. So by putting it in the form of a question, it draws attention. Because the story begins with this rhetorical question. Am hasibata? Do you reckon, do you consider that the story or that the Ashabul Kaf are from our wondrous signs? This draws attention. The question has been asked, well, who are they? Who are the Ashabul Kaf? And now we come to the answer through the story. So, who are the Ashabul Kaf? The young men or the people of the cave? When you go to the, the tafsirs, such as the tafsir of Imam al-Qurtubi and al-Tabari and others, and virtually all of the tafsir for that matter, you find mention of various narrations describing their story, the story of seven young people. There are seven young men. And Allah Ta'ala confirms that they were young men and not elderly men because he says later in the story, إِنَّهُمْ فِتْيَةٌ آمَنُوا بِرَبِّهِمْ وَزِدْنَاهُمْ huda. They were fitya, they were young people. So the youth in the cave were from a people called Absus. That's in the Arabic. Yes, with a scene. But I'm going to give you the, the actual Roman Greek names for these places. Absus. Absus. They're from a people called Absus in a place called Tortush. Now, there's a Syrian Tortush, but in that day, Tortush was in present day Syria as well as the other side in Turkey, what we call Antioch. Antioch, Antak, how's it called in Arabic? Antakia? Yeah. So, this is a region between Aleppo and Antioch. So, in present day, the Ashabul Kaf would have, this is in Turkey. So it's in Turkey. Now, this area, Absus, has a Roman name. So what I'm going to give you today, I'm giving you the Arabic names for these figures and places, as well as the, the Roman version. Because this story is not just in the Quran, it's elsewhere. And this was a, essentially a Rumi story, a Rumi experience. These were from the people of Rome. Who are the people of Rome? Well, there's a lot of confusion about that. People hear Rome and they automatically think of what? Rome. You think the Vatican, Rome, you think Italy. But the Romans, were they just in Italy? You have the, you have the Roman Empire and eventually you have the you have the Western Roman Empire and then eventually the Eastern Roman Empire. There's a lot of history there. So the Rome, let's talk a little bit about the Rome as a people because they're mentioned in the Quran. There's a whole chapter, Surah Rome. There's mention of Rome in the Hadith and there's a connection between Rome and signs in the end of time, right? So the Rum, when we go to the, the books of Ilmun Nasab or genealogy, and we go to the, the Ma'ajim, the, the dictionaries and lexicons, we find that Rum are defined as the offspring of Esau, the son of Ishaq. So Ishaq had many sons. One of them was Esau, who went west and from whom the Rome, in a broad sense, are descended. So the Rome is not a, not, a, not a region in the world, per se. It's not a country. It's a human stock. So you have Bani Israel, you have Bani Ismail, right? You have Al-Ahmar, Al-Asfar. You have, these are actually human stock. Now, in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, 
the Rome were identified with the Byzantines. And these were the inheritors of the old Roman Empire, which had at a certain stage split into the Western Roman Empire, and then that was swept aside by the barbarians. And then you have the Eastern Roman Empire centered in Byzantium. Byzantium back then was basically Turkey, basically Turkey, and those outlying regions, and Syria, and, and parts of Jordan, uh, North Arabia. When you go to when you go to North Arabia, present-day Tabuk, that whole area, it's all Rumi, Byzantine territory, right? Now there you have some admixtures with other peoples, but essentially that's the territory. And back in the time of the Prophet wasallam, it was a superpower. And the other superpower was the Furs, the Persian Empire. So the Roman Empire to the north, to the northeast, and then you have the Persian Empire to the, sorry, yeah, northwest, sorry. And then the Persian Empire was to the east of Arabia. These two superpowers were fighting. And when Allah Ta'ala gave victory to the Rome over the Persians, Allah reveals this in the Qur'an, in the beginning of the chapter, it was celebrated by the Sahaba. Uh, it was a reason for them to celebrate because the Byzantines, compared to the Persians, were better. Why? They were Ahlul Kitab. They were Christians, right? So in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu the Romans, it's, we don't say Romans, we just say Byzantines. Right, they were the Byzantines in his time. Suhaib al-Rumi, for instance, he wasn't a Rumi; he was Arab, but he was taken as a slave and was living among the Rum, meaning the Byzantines, until eventually he was sold uh, to an Arab, and that Arab sold him in Mecca, and he spoke Arabic with an accent, even though he was an Arab. Right, so. This is a story situated in Turkey, present-day Turkey, in a place called Absus, or uh, I think it's pronounced uh, Ephes Ephus. I have to look at the actual pronunciation. Did you say this cave is located in Turkey? Present-day, present-day, present yeah. Um, yes. Present-day is uh, not Absus, Tartus. But across the border, it's not far from the border, is it? No, it's not, of course, because uh, yeah, Antakya, like that, it was known as the last kingdom on the Spartans of Syria, but mm. now it's the same. Tartus. Okay, so these are, these are young people from that region. Now, here's the question. Now, it's a, this is a historical question. Were they... from the early Christians or were they from the Jews? This is, you know, most of the Mufassirun say they're from the, the early Christian community. However, there's a little bit of discrepancy because you have some opinions which say that these were a community before the birth of Sayyidina Isa ibn Maryam. And those who take this view, they say there's a couple of narrations that lend support to that. When you go to the hadith or the narration about the background of this chapter being revealed, remember I said, remember, the occasion of revelation was the challenge that Quraysh put to the Prophet Where did they get that information from? They went to Yathrib and got it from the rabbis. Why would the rabbis ask them to challenge the Prophet about a story that is within the Christian tradition? The Jews had always had animosity with the Christians why would they bring up a story that praises a young community of Christians who fled 
to preserve their religion from idolatry, right? It's as if they're telling the story or they're mentioning the story of one of their own, right? Because historically, there's always been this animosity with the Jews and the Christians and it's always been a tense relationship. People talk about, you know, oh, the Judeo-Christian heritage. That term wasn't used until 1950s. Before that, it was, it was just wasn't used. So some of the ulama, a very few, say that this was a story from a people before the birth of Sayyidina Isa Ibn Maryam. And they have a couple of narrations that uh, seem to support this. Um, Ibn Kathir, for instance, uh, he mentions, uh, so Ibn Kathir basically says that it's mentioned that this was from the early Christian community However, it seems most apparent that these were people before the Christian community arose because if they were in fact Christians from the Christian community, the rabbis of the Jews would not have taken it upon themselves to mention the story, right? So that's an opinion, right? Others say that yeah, it's possible that this could have been from the early Jewish community persecuted by the Romans because the Roman Empire has a history of persecuting the Jews as well as the Christians, right? When you read a lot of the early biblical stories, you see that's Roman persecution and occupation of the areas of Palestine. And you read later history, and you find before the conversion of Constantine, you have Roman persecution of the early Christian communities. So that's one opinion. But the majority say that, no, this is actually a story from within the early Christian community. And they say the reason why the Jews would have mentioned this story is because despite their animosity towards the Christians, it's a known story, and it should be used to test the knowledge of the Prophet So that's one view. One of the lexicologists and historians, Ibn Athir, who has a book of history and lexicology, he talks about this story in his Al-Kamil fi tarikh his book of history. And he says... Uh, that the position of the vast majority of scholars is that these young men were from the early Christian community. He says, وَزَعَمَ بَعْضُهُمْ أَنَّهُمْ كَانُوا قَبْلَ الْمَسِيحِ وَأَنَّ الْمَسِيحِ أَعْلَمَ قَوْمَهُ بِهِمْ وَأَنَّ اللَّهَ بَعَثَهُمْ مِنْ رَقْدَتِهِمْ بَعْدَ رَفْعِ الْمَسِيحِ وَالْأَوَّلُ أَصَاحِ So, he says that some people have claimed that these young men were before the time of Prophet Isa and that the Prophet Isa السلام, informed his people about them and that Allah caused them to wake up after Prophet Isa السلام, was raised up into the heavens. He says, however, the first view that these were from the Christian community, it is the soundest view. So the Quran doesn't mention these details. It doesn't mention the finer points of the story because the point of the story is not the finer details, it's the broader lessons it contains. But for historical interest, we find these details discussed in the books of Tafsir. So, in the Christian tradition, these young men are called the seven sleepers or the sleeper, sleepers of Ephesus, Ephesus, which is E-P-H-E-S-U-S, -E pronounced Ephesus. Does that sound familiar? Absus. 
Remember we said in the beginning? They were from a people called Absus. It's Ephesus. So it's outside. It's actually, it's an area in modern-day Turkey. So it is said that they hid in the cave in the year beginning or at around the year 230, between 230 and 250 Christian era, as they say A.D. We don't say A.D., we'd say Christian era. So this is 230 to 250 Christian era. They hid in the cave in that time frame to escape persecution, and they were discovered how many years later? 300 and, and 9. Wazdadu tis'a. So Allah mentions this, and there's a subtlety behind that. 300 plus 9, add 9. So 309 years later. Now we don't have a way of knowing with any certainty the exact date those young men fled and went into this cave. But if those dates are somewhat accurate, that they went into the cave at around 230 to 250 Christian era and remained for 309 years, that means, if you do the math, their discovery or their waking up would have been about 60 to 20 years before the birth of the Prophet and the news would have spread in those regions. It's all speculation. We don't know. But it obviously happened before the Prophet And if it's in the Christian tradition, you've got to do the math. You've got to factor in the time of the mission of Sayyidina Isa, how long he was on the earth, the time period, the fatra between Prophet Isa and the birth of the Prophet and the 309 years. So give or take, it could be 60, could be 20, could be in between. We don't know. But it's not too far from the birth of the Prophet Now the earliest version of this story comes from the Syriac bishop known as Jacob of, of Saruk, who died in the year 521 in the Christian era. So this is before the birth of the Prophet And his narrative of the story of the seven sleepers is derived from an earlier Greek source. And this story has an outline in other works of the period and afterwards. And there are accounts of the story of the seven sleepers in nine medieval languages and preserved in over 200 manuscripts dating between the 9th and the 13th centuries. So you have 104 Latin manuscripts, 40 Greek manuscripts, 33 Arabic manuscripts, 17 Syriac manuscripts, 6 Ethiopic, 5 Coptic, 2 Armenian, and 1 Middle Irish and 1 Middle English. So there's a lot of manuscripts going back into antiquity describing the story of the seven sleepers from within the Christian tradition. So it was common knowledge among the Christians in those regions. And when you look at in the books of what they call Roman martyrology or the, the Catholic collections of the, the, the martyrs of the church, you find the story of the seven sleepers and they mention in, that, in those collections the date when it occurred. When exactly to the day did the young men go into the cave? We don't have certainty about this, but this is what they have. They record that the young men went into the cave on the 27th of July. What day are we in today? I didn't plan for this. I didn't plan for this. I did a bit of research and I saw that date. I said, hmm. It's a, a curious coincidence that we talk about them 
on that exact date. So what exactly is the story? After establishing that most likely, with a strong degree of certainty, in fact, they are from the early Christian community, what exactly is the story? We, we have the details, or we have the outline, of, at least, of the story in Surah Al-Kahf. As I said earlier, the Qur'an doesn't tell us all the minor details. It gives us the basic outline and the lessons derived from it. Because the purpose is not to be regaled with facts and figures, but to derive lessons, moral lessons and theological lessons. But in the tafsir works, they always go into the details. So let's do that. And then we will look at the verses one by one in light of the more detailed story. Okay? So we said the people of the cave, Ashab al-Kaf, were a group of youth. And in the tafsir works, they mentioned that they were the sons of some of the chiefs of their people. And these people were the people of Rome. Were they of the Byzantine Empire? No, because the Byzantine Empire was a Christian empire. We're talking about before that, when the Romans, the Rome, were idol worshippers. So they were from the early Christian community. They were not pagan Romans like their people. These young men were not idol worshippers. Allah guided them away from that and strengthened their fitrah and aversion to idol worship, even though their people were pagans. Now, in this time period, the Roman Empire was engaged in a covert and an overt war against the early Christian community. And they would imprison, torture, and kill anyone who was a Christian and who denounced the Roman pantheon of false gods. And there's a lot of details we have in the early uh, historical records from the Roman Empire about that persecution. Anyone basically found worshipping Allah alone and not the pantheon of false Roman gods would be persecuted and slain and also often murdered in very hideous ways. We have a hadith which describes a bit of that. There's a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ which mentions that he was once reclining in the shade of the Kaaba. And this is in the Meccan period before Hijrah. He's reclining in the shade of the Kaaba and they're experiencing lots of persecution in those early days. Some of the companions, they go to the Prophet ﷺ and they say, Ya Rasulullah, make dua that Allah gives us victory against oppression. And the Prophet ﷺ says, there were people before you who would have an iron comb placed on their scalps and the flesh would be torn from the bone, getting them, trying to get them to renounce their faith. Yet they remain firm. No matter what torture they face, they remain firm. And then he says, However, you're hasty. That hadith is speaking about some of the tortures given to the early Christian community. And when we say early Christian community, we mean muwahidun. We mean people of tawheed. Uh, we don't mean, because uh, this, this all of this is predating the Council of Nasiya, where they codified the belief in the Trinity. Right? All of these events were happening before the Christian theology took the belief of Jesus being a literal son of God or the belief in the Trinity. So this is pre-Trinitarian Christianity, and these are believers in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and followers of the message of Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam. So these young men, they were fed up with the idolatry of their people, and they embraced the faith of Prophet Isa alayhi salam. These were original Christians. And they were forced to keep their faith secret because of the environment. If they were to be public with their iman, they would have been tortured and killed. 
So in their bodies, they're mixing with their pagan society, but in their heart, they're with Allah. Now, who was the ruler at this time? The ruler, in the tafsir works, they say his name was, they give two names, or two alternative pronunciations. They say Daqyus or Daqyanus. That's the Arabic spelling of, of the name of this Roman emperor. His actual name in Roman accounts is Deshus. Deshus, spelled D-E-C-I-U-S. Deshus. And Deshus, or Daqyanus, or Daqyus, he ruled the Roman Empire for just two years. 249 to 251. And he died in the year 251. It's mentioned that Deshus was a distinguished politician during the reign of Philip the Arab, who was a Roman emperor. The Roman emperor Philip the Arab was of mixed heritage, born in Syria. His father was an Arab, but he rose through the ranks and eventually became emperor of the Roman Empire. So he was a politician during the reign of Philip the Arab, and Deshus was proclaimed emperor by his troops after he put down a rebellion, because there are lots of rebellions and wars going on in that time. And in 249, Deshus went to war with the actual emperor, Philip the Arab, and he killed Philip the Arab in a place called Verona. Not Verona, PA, but Verona in that region. You see how so many of the names of cities and townships come from all of this history. So he was recognized as an emperor by the Senate after he killed the prior emperor, Philip the Arab. Now during his reign, which is very short-lived, two years, he tried to strengthen the Roman state, which included strengthening the Roman religion. So he was basically trying to strengthen the Roman state from, and rescue it from its prior weakness. A part of that meant persecuting the early Christian community as a way to prevent the spread of that message so that the prior, the, the Roman religion, the pantheon of gods, would be strengthened. And during that time, a lot of notable Christians from that early community were put to death, and we even have the names of some of them. But again, the historical records are sometimes questionable, but we have names at least. Now, in the last year of his reign, Deshus was ruling as the emperor alongside his son. His son was named Herennius Etruscus, and they ruled just for two years until they were killed by the Goths. So you have all this history, the barbarians, the Visigoths, and whatnot. So anyhow, during the time of the young men, Deshus was the ruler, and he was persecuting the early Christian community. Now, there is, in the tafsir literature, they mentioned that these young men, despite keeping their faith secret, could not help but be noticed. Because if you are avoiding idol worship and you're keeping it secret, that can only go so far in a society that has lots of public festivals involving the worship of idols. Imagine you're in a place filled with idols and festivals for the idols involving the worship of these idols and you're not an idol worshiper but you're trying to keep that secret. How long can you keep it secret when people keep inviting you to this and that festival, this and that program, and you have an excuse for every time? Eventually, that's going to arouse suspicion. Why is he avoiding this? Why, why is he never seen at any of the festivals or any of the uh, displays of worship to these idols? 
So they begin to arouse suspicion and they become something of the talk of the town, you know, the rumors in the streets are that these people have renounced the gods. And some of the spies that reported back to the Roman emperor went back with news of their activities. And they said, your majesty, we have some grave news. There are some of your subjects and they're not worshiping our gods, they're worshiping their god. So Deshus, knowing that these are young men from the sons of many of his chiefs, doesn't want to just grab them and torture them straight away. He wants to give it a chance because these are, after all, the children of trusted officials. So he says, let us send some people to check this out and see what's going on. And they sent some, he sent some people out to follow them around and watch them. And they come back and say, we've confirmed everything they've said. They're not worshiping the gods. They've abandoned the gods. And seeing as they're young men from the sons of his chiefs, he wanted to give them a chance. They were called forth. And he said, we'll give you a chance. Come back to our religion and we'll leave you. So what are they going to do? They either say yes or they say no. They were basically given this chance and then left alone. Now they have to figure out what they're going to do. Any more time spent in the city, the more festivals will happen, more worship of the idols will happen, and it's going to come to a point where they have to make a choice, get killed or go back to idol worship. So each of them decided that they have to escape. Living there was no longer an option, not even secretly as a believer. They had no choice but to leave, to make hijrah, essentially. And the question was, how are they going to do this? Now the tafsir mentions that these young men who were seven did not know each other. None of them had ever met the others. So the initial, you, you have to picture this, this is happening to seven different young men, none of whom know the others. Each of them are being called forth and told to go back to worshiping idols. So as far as they're concerned, they're all alone in a city of idol worshipers, and they have no choice but to leave, right? So this is the early Christian community, but is there a real community in their time, in their place? Apparently not, but the message had spread somewhat but they were alone as far as they were concerned. So they all, each individually, decided that they had to leave. They all made this decision on their own. And the first of them withdrew. He went very far away, outside of the city, during one of the great festivals of their people. So it's kind of like, you have a big day of Eid, you have thousands of people, Everyone's left their homes and areas and gone to this convention center. Everyone's in the convention center. Well, they're all there. Now's your chance to get out because everyone's busy celebrating. You can sneak out. And, I mean, you look in the story of Sayyidina Ibrahim. When did he smash the idols? Yom Zina, on the day of the festival, he took advantage of that opportunity. Likewise, they took advantage of the opportunity. And on the festival day, each of them individually left secretly from the city, walking God knows where. They had no idea where they're going individually. The tafsir mentions that the first of them left and went very, very far out of the city, up into the mountains. And eventually he sat under a tree. He had no idea where he's going, or what he's going to do. He's just, he's tired. He's sitting under this tree just waiting. And as the first one is waiting under this tree, the second one comes. The second of the seven also ends up going to this tree. And they're just sitting underneath the shade, relaxing. Now the first one doesn't know the second one. 
the second one doesn't know the first one, for all they know, the other one could be a spy. So they're keeping things very quiet. They're not talking to each other. They're definitely not sharing their iman, their belief in what brought them out there. They're both just <laughs> relaxing under the tree. Then the third one comes, and it's the same thing. And then the fourth, and then the fifth, and the sixth, and the seventh. So after a period of time, each of them from various places in the city make their way to this one tree, and they're sitting under it. Eventually, one of them breaks the ice and starts the conversation and shares their story. And the others say, it's the same thing with me, same thing with me. That's why I'm here as well. And they realize that Allah brought them there. Allah guided them to that specific location, inspired in them to stop and sit under that particular tree to meet the others. So as they're talking amongst themselves, figuring out what they're going to do, they decided that they need to set up a place for themselves, where a kind of musalla, a place where they can do their salat and their dhikr and worship and be free. And as they're talking among themselves, trying to figure out what they're going to do, a, a, an older man from the area was walking around. And this man is, I guess, one of the rural people living in the mountains, a farmer of some sorts. And he's walking around with his dog. He sees these young men and they look different. They don't look like the average young man. He saw the nur of iman, the light of faith on them. And he asked them if he could keep company with them. He said to himself, these must be uh, awliya, these must be friends of God. These must be beloved to God Almighty. And he asked them if he could keep company with them. And the ulama say, that from the lessons of this is uh, if you try to hold to your iman Allah will guide you to the right people right Allah Ta'ala says in the same chapter further on man yahdi Allah fahuwa al-muhtadi whomsoever Allah guides is guided wa man yudlil and whomsoever he misguides falan tajida lahu waliyan murshida you'll not find for that person any guiding friend. So the, the mafhum of the verse is that if Allah guides you, you find people. You find people you can benefit from. In whatever capacity, you'll find some benefit. So they decided to take this shepherd and the dog along with them. And they go up into this mountain seeking a place to hide out until they find a cave. And this cave, we mentioned that the kahf in Arabic is larger than aghar. Aghar is a smaller cave that can fit one or two people. But the kahf is a lot bigger. It can, it can fit more. So Allah Ta'ala facilitated them for them to find this cave. And they decide they're going to stay in this cave until they can figure out what they're going to do. Where will they go from there? And they decided to put the dog outside of the cave so that it could guard them and alert them to any intruders. So after some time, these young men asked the shepherd, the one with the dog, if he could go back to the town to pick up some food and supplies and also to put his ear out on the street to see what is the talk in the town. You know, what are the people saying about these young men? Because if you think about it, after the festival has ended and people return to their homes, obviously their family and then others are going to find out that they're all missing. And it's not just one, it's seven. And each of these seven has aroused suspicion. So they asked the shepherd to go to the town to see what's going on. And he would go and pick up food, bring it back to them and tell them what's being said about them. The emperor, by this time, is informed that these seven young men are missing. And he sends his spies out to look for them all through the city and on the outskirts of the city. 
Around the same time, the shepherd went back to the city to get some food and items. And he realizes what's going on. So he returns back to the young men and he says, I won't be able to bring back any supplies for you anymore. I can't do it. It's too risky. I have really bad news for you. The king's forces and his spies have spread out. They're combing the area looking for you. Everyone is watching. If basically he's saying to them, if I am spotted taking supplies and one of them follows me, they're going to find you. You're going to get caught and I will get punished as well. I can't do this anymore. So this is where the story begins, is when they seek refuge in the cave after he has pardoned himself, after he has rather excused himself from being able to bring items. Allah Ta'ala says, إِذْ أَوَلْ فِتْيَةُ إِلَى الْكَهْفِ فَقَالُوا رَبَّنَا آتِنَا مِنْ, آتنا من لَدُنْكَ رَحْمَةً وَهَيِّئْ لَنَا مِنْ أَمْرِنَا رَشَدًا When the youth took shelter in the cave, they said, Our Lord, give us mercy from yourself and bless our affair with guidance. So think about this for a moment. Imagine you're in their shoes. You had to flee with your iman. You had to literally head for the hills. And you have to literally live inside of a dark cave. But you have someone who can at least go to the town and bring you food. Some time passes by and he tells you he can't bring you any more food. So you can't get food and you can't go back to town. It's a done deal. What do you ask for? What did they ask for? When they received that news, they saw refuge in the cave and they asked Allah for his mercy. They didn't ask for an army of angels to destroy the people. They asked Allah for mercy. They were thinking about the hereafter because if they get caught, they're going to get tortured and persecuted. Their faith will be put to test and they didn't want to experience that test for fear of failing it. So they're asking Allah for mercy, asking Allah for the hereafter. So the lesson here is to ask Allah for his rahmah when difficulties happen. Because without rahmah, everything else is useless. They didn't just say, oh Allah, save us. Oh Allah, give us victory. They asked Allah for rahmah and they said, lana min amrina rashada, And give us guidance in this affair. What should we do? They don't have an answer. They don't know at this moment that they're going to fall asleep for 309 years and remain alive. They don't know they're going to be experiencing that miracle. For all they knew, they could have been caught. And either they remain and get caught or they have to leave the cave without the shepherd and find their way somewhere else and risk getting caught. So they were in a very difficult situation. But look at how Allah answered the dua. Allah answered the dua by making them experience this miracle that is recorded not just in the Quran, but also in the Christian tradition. They fall asleep for 309 years. After they make this dua, Allah Ta'ala mentions in the chapter, فَضَرَبْنَا عَلَىٰ آذَانِهِمْ فِي الْكَهْفِ سِنِينَ عَدَدًا Then we sealed their ears in the cave for a number of years. So before we talk about that, just let's take one brief look at the shepherd and the dog. The dog is mentioned in the chapter. The shepherd is not mentioned. But the shepherd benefited from his companionship with the Ashab al-Kahf, even though it was very short-lived. And even the dog benefited from his association with the young men in the cave. Because Allah chose to mention the dog in the Qur'an. So the dog even received a share of that rahmah. So if you're around people of rahmah, you receive a share of the rahmah as well. Allah mentions in the beginning of the story that he sealed their ears in the cave for a number of years. Uh, darabna here 
it means covered or sealed. Why does Allah say covered? Why does he say seal their ears and not their eyes? Think about that one. Well, are there any light sleepers among you? What wakes you up first? Something that you see or that you hear? Something you hear. Someone could turn on a light and you'll wake up. But most people wake up due to sounds. So that's human nature. And for this reason, Allah mentions that he sealed their ears before the eyes. So Allah Ta'ala sealed the ears before the eyes, and therefore they're sleeping for many, many years. There are some subtleties in this story. So we basically introduced the, the, the historical background of the seven sleepers, what happened in their time, and a little bit about the story from the two verses in the Qur'an. Inshallah, we stop here, and then next week, having covered the story, we'll go verse by verse looking at what happened, tying it into the detailed story in the tafsir works. Inshallah ta'ala. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.